But I do want to welcome all of you to all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. Way to go. You made it to church on a beautiful weekend. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online today, wherever you might be around the country or world. We know that this is your connection to us and us to you, so welcome to you as well. Uh, just quick time out before we get started. We've been uh, talking a little bit about children's ministries today, and I'm so grateful because every weekend at all six campuses, our staff and volunteers lead... 4,000 kids, imagine that, 4,000 kids every weekend in Elevate and Cododio to experience faith in Christ. And I'm telling you, it's world class. But we have a problem. Uh, we simply do not have enough volunteers to adequately lead this thing, and every weekend we're short. So I'm asking all of you at all campuses to please consider helping out. Uh, even if it's just for one service or one weekend now, now and then, uh, we have a mission to accomplish. It begins with our kids. We'd like to do it along together with you. So if you're between the ages 16 and like 90, <laughs> we can probably use you some way. You've got a card in front of you on your program. You can tear that off, fill it out, drop it off as you leave. Or text KIDS555888. Please help out if you can. But today, we, uh, we're starting a new three-week series called Dangerous Prayers that I think has the potential to be a spiritual breakthrough for every single one of us. So many, so many of my own prayers are so weak, so predictable. I pray prayers like, you know, God bless me today. God be with me. Watch over me. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers, but what am, I, what am I even asking God to do? But every once in a while, I'll stop and catch myself and I'll say, if I could ask God for anything, what would it be? What miracle would I ask God to do? Who, who would I ask God to reach or affect or change or heal in some way? I think sometimes God hears my prayers and he's like, really, Bob? That's all you got? You know, that's all you're trusting me to do? So today's dangerous prayer is a prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. And I think it's one of the most courageous prayers that you and I could ever pray. It's 24 verses long, but I'm going to focus on the last two statements or verses that David prays to God. And it goes like this. It's very familiar to some of you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's a prayer. Test me and examine my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? God, examine my heart. Examine my thoughts. Search me, show me my sin, lead me to a better way of living. It's a dangerous prayer because if you start asking God to do those things, to search your heart and examine your thoughts and show you a different way to live, he'll do it. And it could be challenging for you and painful even to look at some of that stuff, but God wants us to address the sin, whatever might be wrong in our lives. For me, it's a little like going to the skin doctor, which I hate doing it. But 10 years ago, I had some skin cancer removed, surgically removed from my face, and so once a year... I get a full body checkup from a dermatologist, but it's really, really uncomfortable for me to do this every time. You know, they make me change into one of those worthless gowns that has no backside. You strip down to your whitey tighties or whatever you guys wear, I don't know. But I feel totally exposed sitting in this cold room waiting for the doctor. And my doctor's a really old guy, way older than me. So I'm, 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 used, to the, I'm used to what he does and the ordeal, the whole thing. But last, the last time, just a couple months ago, uh, he knocked on my door. I was waiting in the room. He knocked on my door, and walking in right behind him was a middle-aged woman holding a chart. And I thought, what is she doing in here? This feels totally wrong. 
So I, I tucked my backwards miniskirt in a little tighter around my exposed areas. And he started to examine, you know, my head and shoulders. If you've ever seen a monkey kind of pick things out of other, another monkey's hair, that's kind of what it feels like. He's looking all over and touching me, and you know, it just creeps me out a little bit. And then, then he makes, and he works his way down, and all the way down. And so he makes me lie down on the gurney, and all the whole time this woman assistant was right there taking notes, and I thought, this is so, so embarrassing to me. I mean, that guy's seen parts of my body I haven't even seen, so now this woman... And that's kind of what this prayer is like. Bit of a stretch. But it's kind of what it's like, because in verse 1, David says, Lord, you have searched me. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. He knows, God knows you're sitting here, knows what you're doing. You perceive my thoughts. He knows exactly what we're thinking about right now. And you are familiar with all my ways. In other words, God knows everything about us, and nothing escapes his exam. And that's not always comfortable, is it? Because we might have some things in our life that we'd rather God not see. We like to cover it up. Rather keep it hidden. But gang, here's the thing. As uncomfortable and painful as it is for me to be examined by a doctor and his assistant every year, I do it every year. Why? Because cancer can kill you. In the same way, David willingly asked God to examine his life to see if there's any cancerous sin in his heart or his mind, anything in his life that's sinful and offensive, because as uncomfortable and painful as it might be for God to examine his life, he would rather go through that than go through the pain of having sin kill something in his life. So let's take a little look at this prayer, closer look, because I think this can be a breakthrough for all of us, including myself today. There's four parts to this prayer, and the first part is this, God, God, search, search my heart. It's one thing for a doctor to examine your body. It's quite another thing to know what's going on inside a person's heart. And so often we say about people that we, we admire, you know, that person has a good heart. And what we mean by that is that person is honest, they're kind, they're trustworthy, they have a good heart. But the reality is that nobody has a perfectly good heart. In fact, Jeremiah 17, the prophet, says it this way in the Bible, the human heart is most deceitful. Our heart is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad our heart is. The Bible says that none of us have a good heart, that it's so deceptive sometimes, we don't even know how bad we are sometimes. It means we deceive ourselves and don't know the full truth about ourselves. In his great book, The Me I Want to Be, John Ortberg writes, there is a me that I cannot see. There's a part of me that I cannot see. For example, he says, if in a group someone is behaving off kilter, if someone has irritating mannerisms, if someone talks too much or is obnoxious, if someone is a name dropper, if someone is emotionally needy and everybody cringes when they see that person coming because they know that person's gonna suck the life right out of them, who's the last person in the group to know? The person who has the problem, right? The person who has the problem is the last person who knows that they have a problem. And the truth is, Every one of us struggles with this same problem. There is a me 
that I cannot see. And we deceive ourselves into thinking sometimes that we are better than we are. A couple weeks ago, I was coming home from work, and I was supposed to meet my son for nine holes of golf at 5.15, but traffic was heavy. I was running late, there was a traf- and there's a traffic light on Highway 61 where I have to turn left uh, to get to my house and grab my clubs, but at rush hour, the light takes forever to change, and if you miss it, you got to sit in the turning lane for about, you know, six minutes in eternity. So when I came to this light, instead of you know, sitting in the uh, turn lane, I went through the light that was green, and then I turned left into a gas station because I was going to do a U-turn and fake the whole system out. Okay? My plan was to cut through the gas station, merge back into the flow of traffic going north, turn right at the light, and just beat the whole system. The only problem was there was an overly cautious person pulling out of the gas station in front of me who was also trying to merge into the flow of traffic, only she wasn't merging. She had at least two easy, easy opportunities to floor it and get into the flow of traffic, but she just sat there waiting for the Red Sea to part. (laughs) And in a flash of deception and righteousness, I just lost it. I hadn't done this in a long time, but I began waving my hands and I said, what are you waiting for? You've got to be kidding me. I could have been home by now. (laughs) And what really got me is all the cars in the turn lane that I was supposed to be in had already made it through the light. (laughs) Finally, I couldn't take it. So I just went around around the shoulder and I sped home and, you know, just madder than a horn. I may have seen an EBC sticker on her window. I'm not sure of that. (laughs) That's why I have tinted windows all around my car so nobody can see who I am. But who's the idiot? Who's the one who was running late, broke about three traffic laws, got mad, and made everything worse. And I wasn't going to tell you about it because I'm so embarrassed by this. And I'm trying to work on this. You know my problems in this area. And some of you. There is a me I cannot see. And what's really concerning is sometimes my heart is so deceptive that I'm not even aware of the stuff that's going on. So the first thing that David prays, he, prays, he says, God, just search my heart. See if there's anything out of line. Is is there any deception, any cancer that needs to go? It's a dangerous prayer because if you pray that prayer, God will begin showing you some things that you need to deal with. Second thing that David prays is this. God, examine my anxious thoughts. I love this. God, search my heart. Examine my anxious thoughts. I want to ask a question to all of you six campuses online. What makes you anxious? What makes you afraid? David says, God, examine my anxious thoughts. Anxiety and fear is a huge problem for people. It's a problem for me. In fact, at least two nights every week, I lay, I lay awake in bed and my mind won't turn off. My mind jumps from one worrisome thing to another, sometimes for two or three hours straight until I finally just have to get up and read. Author Shauna Nequist struggles with the same thing. She says, I've always had what I call a crazy brain. 
a mind that runs and spins and whirs in the middle of the night, overanalyzing and spinning out. She says, my mind is a bad neighborhood. Anybody here have a crazy brain that never stops? Just tossing and turning things over, causing anxiety and fear. David had the same problem. He said, God, examine my anxious thoughts because fear is something that forms mainly in our mind and is often not attached to reality. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that we, need to, we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. It means we need to somehow corral our thoughts and constrain our thoughts. We need to identify our thoughts and hold them up to the truth that's found in God's word to see if they're valid. I've told you this before that my biggest fear is the fear of failing, believe it or not, of, of not being able to teach well or lead well or hit the numbers. I'm incredibly grateful and amazed to be leading one of the most influential churches in the United States, but the insecurity I feel about staying relevant and strong is a constant fear. But what I'm learning these days is this, that what I fear the most is usually where I'm trusting God the least. This is so true, that where I fear the most, I'm usually trusting God the least, that when my fears are high, my trust is low. It's why Jesus, you know, said, cast all your anxieties and cares on me because I care for you. Cast all your fears on me. I don't do that very well. I cast all my fears on myself and I try to manage them myself. But what I'm learning to do, or at least trying, is when my mind is racing in fear is to try to stop and single them out and then pray through the promises in God's word. And there's four promises that I've been praying lately, even at night when I wake up. It's this first one, cast all your fears on me, Bob. And so I try to do that. Lord, I'm just, I'm casting my fears on you because I know you care for me. Second promise, God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and self-control. And I've just committed this to memory and I repeat it as I wake up at night. Then this one, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm afraid, Lord, but I know with your strength I can get through the next day, the next week. And then this one, my grace, God says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I've committed these things to memory so that when I wake up in fear, I use that as the trigger. I use my fear as the trigger to go to these promises and just repeat them over and over. And as I do that, as I trust God more, my fears begin to dissipate. They're never totally gone. But it's trusting God more. You know, on this side of heaven, I don't think we're ever going to get totally rid of fear. It's just part of the human condition. But as we trust God more and remember his promises and claim those promises, they're not as crippling to us. So David prays, God, examine my anxious thoughts. Teach me to trust you more. Third thing he prays is this, God, show me my sins. Show me my sins. He's asking God to show him where he's behaving wrongly. And it's kind of a strange request because when somebody sins, don't they know it? Oftentimes not. 
In fact, even in my own life, for years, you know, people were telling me, Bob, your careless words and tone of voice is often hurtful to people. And I wasn't seeing it. I didn't believe it. And then they started telling me that I wasn't very compassionate or forgiving. And again, I just blew it off. I thought people were way too sensitive. Just get over it. It's your problem, not mine. Uh, it, it, took, it took two years in front of a counselor for me to see and understand how wrong I was. The Bible says the heart is deceitful. And my own heart was deceiving me. It means we often don't see our own sins because they're blind spots to us. Blind spots are something we don't see on our own. In fact, at the 2000 Global Leadership Summit, Bill Hybels, good friend of mine, talked about blind spots. It was so good. I want you all to see this three-minute clip. So true about every one of us. Watch this. The definition of a blind spot is something someone believes they do well, but everyone on the team knows that it's not true. Research from the Lominger Group suggests that all of us leaders, on average, all of us leaders have 3.4 blind spots. And I can prove it right now. Because when I just gave you that stat, 3.4 blind spots in your life, 100% of you just said to yourself, not me. 100%. No, not me. I don't have any. It's because you're blind to your blind spots, you see? Now, we would all admit to having some weaknesses, and you could name them, and you're working on them. That's cool. But the danger with blind spots is that you really have no idea they exist. So, for decades, I have prided myself for being cool under pressure. I was a fantastic poker player in college. I'm low drama. I rarely raise my voice, slam doors, or pound on any tables. I'm great under pressure, so much so very few people ever even know when I'm stressed, or so I thought. <laughs> several years ago, a perfect storm of pressure came into my life, which lasted several months. But I was going to stay calm, cool, and collected. I wasn't going to let anyone know I was under stress or make anybody else pay, because I'm awesome under pressure. Did I mention that? I'm awesome <laughs> under pressure. One day during that era, as a female colleague of mine was leaving my office, she got to my office door, she turned around and she said, you don't even know that you make all of us crazy when you're stressed out. You don't even know that, do you? She said, just because you're on a crazy train right now gives you no right to expect that we all have to ride it too. So just so that you know, I'm not getting on the crazy train with you this time. <laughs> I'm gonna stay at the station and wave bye-bye to you and whoever else wants to get on that train. She goes, I'm done with that. So she closes the door and leaves. I was speechless, okay? <laughs> so I, I sat there thinking to myself, I'm better under pressure than any senior leader I know. She ought to thank God on her knees every day that she works for a boss who can carry tremendous loads of pressure without anybody even knowing about it, much less having to pay for it, the nerve. <laughs> After work that day, I went running with a trusted friend and I told him how a colleague of mine had accused me of something totally untrue of me. I, I told him how wronged I felt, how misunderstood and hurt I was to be falsely accused of not being cool under pressure. My running partner stopped dead in the middle of the street we were running on, and he said, are you kidding me, Hybels? Everybody knows when you're stressed. When you're stressed, you put stress on all of us. 
And then his next sentence was kind of the capper. He said, when you overwork, you're not happy unless everyone around you is overworking too. And we all know it and we all feel it, but you don't get it. That was quite a moment of truth for me. That was the moment I saw my blind spot in all of its ugliness. It's very disappointing to me. How could I have not seen this in myself? So I started confessing this to my friends, and they tried to be very understanding. They're going, the light bulb just went on now, dude. <laughs> That's what blind spots are, you see? So what's your blind spot? Spots. All of us have at least three. If you have no clue, how would you go about finding out? I have three questions I ask myself. What is God telling me about this? If you open yourself, David said, God, show me my sin. If you open yourself up to God, he'll begin nudging you by his Holy Spirit. He'll bother you. You'll do something or say something, and you'll feel this, ooh, I don't know if I should have done that. That's God's Spirit speaking. What is God saying to you about your blind spot? Second thing, what are other people telling me? If you have three or four friends saying, Bob, are you aware of that? Maybe I should be aware of that because chances are they're pointing out a blind spot that I'm not seeing. It's going to hurt me if I don't get after that one. Final question I ask myself, where am I most defensive? So someone tells me about something in my life, I'm like, come on. Don't bother me. Get off my back. It's your problem, not mine. Chances are when I'm defensive like that, there's, there's an issue in my life that I'm trying to hide and cover up. Pretty defensive about it. Okay. Final thing David prays today is this. God, lead me to a better way. So the first three parts of this prayer are, you know, examine my heart. Examine my anxious thoughts. Show me my sin. Where am I wrong inside? This really has to do with behavior. God, lead me in a better way. What should I do about this? For example, if your heart is filled with fear, what are you now going to do differently to change that? If your heart's filled with anger, what are you going to do to overcome that? If your heart's full of greed, causing you to overspend, what will you now do to break that kind of habit? If you have a critical spirit that just drives people away, you know, if you, if you wonder why you can't sustain relationships, or why you keep falling into destructive relationships, what will you now do to change that? David says, God, lead me in a better way. It's about changing behavior. It's about seeing something that's wrong inside me or in my mind that's causing problems and then deciding to take action to overcome that issue. James 1.22 says it this way, don't merely listen to God's word, do what it says. I love this next statement. If you just listen and don't do anything, it's like looking at your face in the mirror but doing nothing to improve your looks. It's like you got chocolate sauce all over your mouth, but you say, ah, I'm going to go to work anyway, just with that sauce on my face. I don't care. But if you do what God's word says, then he will bless you for it. Gang, there is a doing. There is what action am I going to take to turn this around in my life? In his great book, The Power of the Other, psychologist Henry Cloud tells about a friend of his who was an alcoholic who lost everything because of his addiction. Cloud says, this guy used to be a horrible alcoholic. 
lost three businesses, several marriages. But by the time I'd met him, he'd been sober for 20 years. And so I asked him, how did you become sober? The guy said, really, it wasn't that hard. I went to three AA meetings a day. Cloud said, a day? He said, yes, my goal is to make it from the morning AA meeting to the noon meeting without stopping at the liquor store. Then to make it to the evening meeting after that. I did that for several weeks. Then when I got stronger, I went to one meeting a day. Now, 20 years later, I go to a couple meetings a week. In other words, he did something about it. He created a structure around his life, these AA meetings. That was the structure he needed to overcome a problem that was sabotaging his life. David prayed this, Lord, lead me to a better way of living. I'm becoming aware of the things that are wrong inside me and inside my mind. And my Now show me what to do. So God, if my heart is full of greed, causing me to covet and overspend, man, lead me out of that. What do I need to do? If my heart's full of anger that hurts all my relationships, God, lead me in a better way. If it's full of impurity and lust, causing me to treat people as objects, God, lead me in a better way. If my mind is full of anxiety about my future, about my finances, my health, my relationships, if I'm just overcome by fear, God, please lead me out of that. What are you going to do? What action will you take to overcome the sin that's causing these problems? God, show me my sins and lead me to a better way. I'm so grateful today that we get to celebrate communion. Real briefly, before we close, very important couple minutes. It's a time when God can really show us some of these things in our life and we can confess them. And he can put us on a better path. And so communion is about celebrating what God has done in our lives as those of us who are believers, and not all of us are, I understand that we're so glad you're here if you're not a believer, but if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, God has forgiven you. You're completely forgiven, but this is a chance to, to kind of re-cleanse and confess. And so we're going to do that today. And I'm going to invite all the service, servers at all campuses, come on up, servers, and distribute uh, this little cup that you're going to get and to access the bread, there's a little cellophane on top and a little, another piece of layer to get the, the, the juice. It's kind of difficult to do all that. My wife just kind of skips it and goes to the juice, but I hope God forgives her for that. <laughs> but here's what I want to ask you to do at all campuses. When you receive this, go ahead and distribute those. When you receive this, this cup, I want you to hold it. I want you to hold it in your hand for just a minute or two. And just quietly pray. God, search my heart. Is there any deceitfulness? Is there any impurity there that I need to confess? The second part of this prayer, God, examine my anxious thoughts. Where am I afraid? God, reveal that to me. What's causing the fear? Third part of the prayer, show me my sins. Is there a behavior? Is there an attitude? Is there a habit that's sinful and needs to go? And then ask God to lead you to a better way. The bread represents Christ's broken body that was sacrificed for you and me. 
The juice represents his blood that was spilled, dripping from his hands and feet and elbows into the dirt below. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the supreme sacrifice for all of our sin, that those who put their full trust in him will be completely forgiven. And so as you take the bread and as you take the cup, remember what Jesus did for you. Thank him for it. Confess your sin. You don't have to be a member of this church to take this, receive this, but you do need to be a follower of Christ. At all campuses, uh, after we reflect a little bit, just go ahead and serve yourself. You're not going to be directed to do that, and then the band's going to come up and lead in a closing number as we close.